Welcome to the I Am Vinyl Podcast. Thank you everybody for tuning in today. My name is Joey. So this is one of the halves of our pilot episode for the I Am Vinyl Podcast. My cohort, co-conspirator, and co-host of this podcast, the great Pete LaRussa, uh, he, he had a, a really cool idea. Number one, because our schedules were just getting too complicated and not jiving. And also, you know, because of us being big KISS fans, we decided, hey, let's put out two simultaneous pilots on the same day to launch the I Am Vinyl podcast. That's what we're doing right now here. Uh, you know, as far as how the show's going to go normally, you're going to get solo episodes from myself and from Pete. Also, uh, Pete's going to do some interviews. I'm going to try to actually round up some interviews here in the studio as well. And, you know, since this is a, a joint venture here, uh, myself and Pete will actually get together at some point here and you know, do some roundtables uh, on the phone as well. So it's going to be a real fun show. I'm looking forward to it. It's definitely a thrill and an honor for me to be doing this show with Pete. There was never a thought to do this show with anybody else but Pete. So thanks for coming on board, man. I know it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad we're getting it up here right now. Uh, what I decided to do on my half here was just basically just go for a personal history and my initial upbringing as it ties into the vinyl format, and that's pretty much all of my early musical memories. So sit back and relax for this next hour or so. I will intersperse some music clips throughout as well, and you know, in case I ramble on a little too long. But yeah, it's going to be me talking about me and my personal history of why I am such a vinyl nut. So, yeah, this is, you know, we're not intending this show to be real snobby, real bourgeois or anything like that, hipster crap. We're just dudes that love music, and our preferred format is vinyl. And we're not vinyl-only weirdos, you know. We own CDs, we own tapes, we love it all. But vinyl is king in our world, and so that's why we are vinyl. And that's why this is the I Am Vinyl Podcast. So yeah, enjoy my half of the pilot here for I Am Vinyl. And we hope you keep listening. Enjoy. So for the benefit of those of you who do not listen to Rock Strikes 10, and, uh, you know, if you don't, you're listening to this, and so you're a friend of mine, uh, you know, and over the 300-plus episodes I've done of Rock Strikes 10, I'm sure some of you have gotten to know me and what my taste is, but so I figured since this is the big launch pilot episode of I Am Vinyl, I do a little bit of a personal history and get to the root and uh, overall love of why I've always and still remain loyal to the vinyl format. It's definitely part of the earliest memories that I have, easily. Whether it was just, you know, being at my grandparents' house and they would put records on. They had one of those great old players that would flip the record over. Oh, man. Why can't we have that anymore? How do we go backwards in the evolution of technology of the player? It's really weird. Or what about those furniture pieces that were also record players with speakers on them? Let's get those back. My God. All right. Anyway. But weirdly enough, I believe... I believe my vinyl journey actually starts with me and not so much being influenced by anybody else. I, I remember early on, you know, I'm sure my parents obviously bought these for me, but I, I had those 45 albums that had the little mini kids book attached to them. There was a lot of Disney product out there that, that had those things where you would just follow along with the record or tape. I had both actually. I, I would play the tapes on my Fisher Price tape player, as a lot of people probably had the Fisher Price player. And that was my first favorite toy. I was making radio shows by the time I was like three years old. I was definitely <laughs> ahead of my time there. So I kind of called my shot uh, early on. Uh, 
unbeknownst to me, I wouldn't wind up podcasting until 2011. So back to that, yeah, I had the uh, 45 records with the books attached to them, and I remember Disney stuff, but also especially the Sesame Street stuff. I was a big Jim Henson kid, for sure. Uh, Anybody from my generation, and before and after, probably, if you were raised well and right, you were a Henson kid. Yeah, and I I would actually between my grandfather who was awesome. He was he was a great man. He was more of a dad to me than the one actually said so on my birth certificate. Say, tell me how to read at early age. Tell me how to ride a bike. And between him and these records, that's how I learned how to read at a really early age. Not bragging or anything, because it definitely didn't turn me into like a Bill Gates or, or anything. But, you know, I was advanced at an early age of reading and stuff like that and, and writing. I was a better speller than my sister. I think I still am, actually. She's three years older than me. <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, the, these records, I would listen to the records and memorize them, and that would let me know how these words are spelled and pronounced. And even MTV wound up later helping me with the spelling, <laughs> just because they would put the words, you know, the songs on there, the names of the albums, things like that. Music was a huge learning tool for me, and continues to be. Uh, but going back to those records, I remember distinctly, like, it was like Cookie Monster and the Cookie Tree. That was, like, my favorite book. And somewhere... I think my mom still has a cassette recording of me actually replicating the book on record or book on tape of that. So I haven't unearthed that from her collection yet, but I'm sure it's still there. There's no way she threw that away because my mom's kind of like me in the sense of especially media. But getting back to some other hints and stuff, uh, the first full-length albums I remember owning, or not owning, I didn't buy them, I was still a little kid, but the ones I would keep in my room that I would spend all the time were like uh, the soundtrack to the original Muppet movie and, of course, the first two initial Muppet cast albums from the Muppet TV show. So that's actually, weirdly enough, what got me started on rock and roll. My first favorite rock and roll band was Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. No joke. Still love them to this day. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we like to do for you an old favorite. We like to think of our group as being able to play more than hard rock. So here's an old favorite for some of you moms and pops. It's called, and we'll play, Tenderly. Caress the trees Tenderly Yeah The trembling trees Embrace the breeze Tenderly Then you and I Came wandering by And lost in a sigh Where are we? The shore was kissed By sea and mist I can't forget how two hearts met Breathlessly Your arms open wide And hold me inside You took my lips You took my love So tenderly Your arms 
that's tender, man. So yeah, there you go. My my first favorite rock and roll band was Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. So thanks, Jim Henson. Uh, got the ball rolling for me on rock and roll. I had no idea that these songs were cover songs. I didn't even know the concept of what a cover song was. I was just... And I, did, I had no idea what they were singing. <laughs> I didn't know that Tenderly was a Louis Armstrong song that Rosemary Clooney had popularized way back in the day. I didn't know any of that. I just liked the sounds that were emanating from the speakers. Uh, you know, So that's, that's my reference for that. And that's what's cool about the Muppets is that they reference a lot of old stuff, especially in those old episodes. So the adults could definitely enjoy it too, along with the kids who just wanted to see puppets being wacky and maybe playing a rock guitar here and there. So there wasn't a lot of push for uh, Joey as as a little guy to be a rock fan. I grew up in predominantly a country and western household. This was the early 80s where uh, as my CNJ radio cohort Randy Brown of the Synaptic Empire podcast he would call it cocaine country it starts off basically like late 70s the pop country crossovers into like the urban cowboy stuff and the big ship steers of this genre were definitely or I should say big rig drivers (laughs) uh, were bands like Alabama the Oak Ridge Boys and like Eddie Rabbit you know people like that Ronnie Millsap you know these people that were crossing over onto the pop charts so those are the records that would really get played in the household quite a bit and through my sister's love of like the big soundtracks of the time and even from a few years back like Grease and a Xanadu stuff like that so here I am with my Muppet records and you know Muppet Show cast albums and even like something like a Sesame Street Fever or even like uh, the Pac-Man album anybody remember that? Pac-Man album there there's an actual album dedicated to the Pac-Man thing not not Pac-Man fever but the I guess a cast album in a sense for Pac-Man so if I have some of that I'll whip it off right now here on the show Welcome to Packville. As you probably already know, Packville is the home of that hero of heroes, Pac-Man. Well, you can imagine how hectic things usually are here in Packville. Oh, what with Pac-Man always chasing or being chased by those goofy ghosts, Shadow, Bashful, Speedy, and Pokey. But ah, today seems different. It feels like we're going to have a quiet, uneventful, peaceful day here in Packville. Yes, as uneventful as a game of Pac-Man. Well, I, I, I mean, as, as relaxing as the laugh of a hyena. Well, I know it's going to be as quiet as a roaring train. Um, I guess I was wrong. So even though I was still into, you know, my kitty stuff, 
uh, rock and roll started to creep in a little bit there. And one of the albums I remember being played in my household quite a bit. And I think by this time, honestly, their time had really come and gone. But I have a massive memory of the Shanana records being played at the house, particularly the one on Kama Sutra, the double album best of Shanana. It's like huge hot pink. You can't miss it if you ever see it in stores. If you ever see it, go pick it up. This was a huge important record for me. Uh, like I said, if you know the idea of Shanana, they were a, you know, they, they started off in the late 60s, early 70s, and the whole idea was to bring back the roots of rock and roll and where it all came from because it had gone so far off that path by then, stylistically and culturally, that there were people that were clamoring for the old days, yeah, which wasn't so far removed, but now we're getting into like a 20 year gap. And, you know, they would play the, the big 50s hits, the, the soda pop, you know, burger joint anthems you know the the stuff that you would hear in the the cafe like in back to the future when he goes back to 55 and you know if you uh you know lords of flatbush and all that kind of stuff and even the uh the days right right around that american graffiti period right before the 60s really kicked in and they were still celebrating the early good old days of rock and roll sha na na huge band for me and you know me being born in 79 that was the first time i heard any of those songs you got to think about the songs that they were playing the biggest of the bigs you know i mean you hear heartbreak hotel and great balls of fire and that's the first time i heard those songs i heard all those things on one album can you imagine like hearing all that for the first time all at once i mean i'm surprised my mind didn't explode so shana always gonna love you guys and uh, if you ever see that hot pink double album, Best of Shanana on Kama Sutra, you know, as a double album, it's a ripoff in a sense because each side is probably like 10 minutes. <laughs> but it's still a great album. You should really go check it out. And they're predominantly live versions too, but they were like the Ramones before the Ramones almost in a sense because they played these things at a breakneck tempo so if you've never heard any shana now i'm gonna play a little bit of them right now so check this out this is one of the earliest moments in my brain for rock and roll so here it is okay the heavies from the big apple in the east would you welcome please shot now now
So after Shanana, I remember I would probably have lip sync parties. I was doing lip sync parties before they were broadcasting them on television. So once again, I think I was a little ahead of my time there. <laughs> but yeah, love those Shanana records. And that led me into rock and roll, honestly. Like I said, it was probably just a mere accident that Joey became a massive rock and roll guy. Because I definitely was not pushed in that direction by my folks or anything like that. You know, I, I definitely don't want to let and what we nowadays call Yacht Rock go, because that was an important genre for me as well. At the time, it was just called, you know, adult contemporary or soft rock or soft pop or whatever, pop music. So after Dr. Teeth and Sha Na Na, the first, like, band that wrote originals that had hits were bands like Air Supply that I got into. I was a huge Air Supply guy. Still love Air Supply. And uh, yeah, so you know, I'm definitely guilty of riding the Yacht Rock channel on Sirius quite a bit, especially, you know, by the end of the night, just chilling out, stuff like that. So I just wanted to give a little quick shout out there to that genre. It was like Air Supply was like the band and then I'd hear all these songs which later on I would identify it who was playing these songs whether it was like a, a Gino Vanali or So Into You by the Atlantic Rhythm Section and you know those kind of uh, How Long by Ace I remember all these songs and uh, interspersed with like some of those Urban Cowboy songs like Mickey Gilley's cover of Stand By Me which was big. Uh, you know, even uh, had that little detour into soft rock, but then I, I swear I was probably no more than three years old, where I was like just, you know, you can imagine this kid, like, you know, just removed from a diaper, and he's reaching for the radio dial and, you know, I'd hit up those top 40 stations, that's where my hand would stop, because I would hear sounds that were definitely pleasant to my ears. I don't know if it's so much my mom's, but, uh, so at this point it was just me and her in the house a lot, so I'd, you know, flip the radio on, or if it was on, I'd flip it over. <laughs> I'm sure I bugged her to death to no end, but that was hearing a lot of these songs for the first time. We were 82, getting into 83, and I don't know how it happened, but started to get 45s coming into the house that were like top 40 songs, and I don't know if I asked for them, or maybe my sister did, I don't know. But I remember probably the first 45 that I remember having in my room that was like a current thing was Minute Work, Down Under. Huge record for me. And I was, I was the weird kid that, you know, I'm sure other people did this obviously they did but i would you know put the record on i learned how to operate you know the record player and i would flip over the album and play the other side because i wanted to hear what was on there you know so having that down under 45 and equally loving the b-side crazy i still love that song it wasn't even on business as usual it was just a b-side that didn't make it on the record but things like that when i hear that song crazy i'm immediately taken back uh, to being probably about three or four years old. It's crazy. My earliest memories are these songs.
Definitely can't talk about my earliest moments of music without talking about my next door neighbor, and who was really my first best friend. It was a guy named Sean George, and uh, Sean's still out and about. I uh, see him on social media and stuff like that, and I, I legit have not hung out with Sean since 1987, which is crazy. I have we have not been in the same room together since 1987. But, I, you know, he was the kid that lived next door. And one of my, the earliest things that happened between me and Sean is I was, uh, you know, flipping around the TV one afternoon. And I definitely hadn't started school yet at this point. Just staying at home with my mom, watching TV. And I was specifically stopping down if music was being played. And it must have been one of the USA shows. It would have had to have been something like Radio 1990, for those of you who remember that show. Which, uh, obviously, the concept and the title, Radio 1990, is music videos. By, by the 90s, music videos would be the thing. And radio probably would not exist or something weird like that. But they would play the video hits of the day. And that's where I got to, like, you know, get a visual on some of these acts. And... I remember specifically being scared to death when bands that I would eventually wind up loving and seeing their videos for the first time, like Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister. 
I'd run out of the room. Ozzy Osbourne, especially Bark at the Moon, was like the thing at the time. And I remember running out of the room, scared to death. Ozzy in that, uh, you know, Mr. Hyde werewolf gimmick in the Bark at the Moon video gave me nightmares. And I even remember specifically walking around a record store. One of those old record stores was like the size of a Bed Bath & Beyond. And they had the P.O.P. posters of Bark at the Moon. They were like 40 feet tall. They went from the ground to the floor and it was all that same image. And I used to run away screaming from that thing. It's like, my God, man. But I remember specifically, and it would have to have been, I, I bet you even at this point, just remembering exactly what they look like and what they're wearing. I'm sure on Radio 1990 they were showing a vintage Kiss clip, probably from the Houston Summit, if I had to guess. And I remember seeing Kiss. And at that point, you know, you'd seen like Twisted Sister where they would wear makeup, but like, you know, Tw Kiss looked like, you know, they looked like demons. They looked like devils ran out of the house screaming and I ran right into Sean and I explained to him what I just saw and he immediately recognized that I was watching a KISS video and you know I'm three or four years old and he immediately put me at ease like yeah no those guys are cool so if Sean says they're cool then they must be cool and I remember like my mom would let me go listen to music in his place you know it was like a big brother little brother thing and I specifically remembered he had the, the Ace Fraley smoking guitar poster on his wall and that thing just blew my mind like what is this like what is going on here? Why is there so much smoke, you know? All these things that go through your brain. And the Sean George effect has uh, it steered me in what would become my musical taste, not just throughout my early years in the 80s, but to this day. So, you know, if he's listening out there, man, thank you, Sean. I mean, like, not only was it like, hey, Kiss is fine, they're all right. Uh, easily the guy that turned me on to Prince and Van Halen and just, you know, would actually would become the greatest acts of all time. Uh, Sean was uh, on board with them and he got me on board with them. And uh, most of my friends that I've made throughout, you know, time here, my best friends, they wouldn't get into music in, until like, you know, long after puberty or around that time but you know it didn't seem like anybody my age was really into music all that much so I like apparently at this point I was already kind of an old soul <laughs> so but I dig that and uh, that's uh, I call myself a lifelong musicologist not to be snobby or anything but because I've always taken ownership over my music fandom so it's moments like this that really steered me in that direction uh, and the last time I hung out with Sean I, we'd already moved out I was living in Baton Rouge Louisiana at the time I probably should have mentioned that by now I was born in Baton Rouge Louisiana and we moved away from there in 1985 but a couple of years later we went back to visit and uh, spent the night over at Sean's house and he had just gotten a copy of Ozzy Osbourne's tribute album to Randy Rhodes, that great live album. And we must have stayed up all night listening to that album. That's what it seemed like. We listened to that album. We would It was you know a double album. We'd flip it over, play it again, play it again. And once it was over, we'd start from the beginning over. And I think it was probably about the third go-round that it was like, hey, you want me to make you a copy of this? <laughs> like on a cassette I was like yeah of course yeah so we listened to it again <laughs> and he put a bunch of other songs on the uh, end of the second side to fill it out of like other cool songs or songs by the Beatles and even old Sabbath and and stuff like that and you know I, I remember getting a mixtape from him around the time that uh, we had moved and it was like the first time I heard Tom Sawyer 
and more than a feeling and uh, some George Thurgood stuff like Bad of the Bone and No Particular Place to Go uh, this has opened up my ears to all this great stuff so Sean is uh, an essential and irreplaceable figure in my life so once again thank you sean i I, i'm just gonna have to refer back to that ozzy album i'm gonna play something to represent the the sean george effect so there you go I'm talking about my formative years as a vinyl fiend and just overall huge music fan. I can't let the 45 go. I still can't to this day. I don't know why, you know, like the audio files, they'll tell you that, you know, they sound the best. And then, you know, because of the stretched out nature of them. Yeah, this is true. The 45s pretty much have the best sound quality overall uh, for any format of vinyl. But uh, other than that, the 45 has never made sense. You know, I mean, obviously it's just one of those things 
you save money if you want that one song you just buy it and then you play it over and over again massively inconvenient you know because you can't go too far from the player because otherwise you either put the song back on or you flip it over and play the b-side you know if you tried to explain the concept of the 45 or 7 inch depending on what your dialogue is you know a lot of the a lot of these kids today <laughs> they'd be like what like this is this is dumb like why are you making this so hard on yourself i don't get it but it's just one of those it's still just like that gateway to the innocence and the youth and everything and i've still got a healthy amount of 45s for sure uh, but yeah the 45 like i said earliest memories that that minute work 45 i mentioned before i think i had every 45 representing the 1984 album by van halen same thing goes for prince's purple rain i would wind up having the 45s and the singles uh, more so than having the full links uh, especially over the first few years it never became too much of an issue that i had the full length so i was kind of a weird kid in a sense that i guess it was one of those money things like you know i never ever felt growing up that we were struggling i you know i'm sure i'm sure my mom struggled she basically raised me and my sister by herself but she never let on to that like i'm sure i asked for the occasional you know star wars figure or he-man figure or hot wheel car or whatever but truly the thing that i wanted every week when we went to the store was a 45 album and whatever song i was into that week was like you know mom can i please get this i'm sure i wasn't as nice and asking because I, I who knows i know i wasn't a dicky kid or anything but you know how it is when you're a kid you hear kids of this day in stores being assholes but i remember just being like i like this song i want this song and that's what it turned into so i remember I'd probably get like a 45 a week and that was her buying my silence while she went to the grocery store or you know whatever furniture store whatever store i wasn't going to be into i would probably carry that thing around and just be like oh this is mine now I can't wait to get home and play it so obviously when like the record labels and the bands are like planning these 45 releases out at the time you know i'm sure it's more of a label thing but you know you'd have like a huge song on there and you know most of the time you would just put a, a strong album cut that wasn't going to be a single on the back end on the b-side of, of said song and it would hopefully get you to buy the full link so they kind of get your money twice in a sense uh, but you know going back to the 45s dealing with the 1984 album by van halen there were a handful of songs that were also on the 1984 album but i remember specifically uh getting real lucky and i got like the hot for teacher 45 uh, the limited edition one that was like in the store. And I wish I knew that store's name. I had such a cool record store back in Baton Rouge. It was all records, you know, posters, buttons. And I just flipped through the albums, man. And, and you know, that's the first time I saw like Iron Maiden album covers and Dio album covers. And I was just like, wow, what is this? I mean, it, it definitely intrigued me and, and kind of scared me at the same time. I remember that store had a, a just a TV room in the back with just one TV, no furniture. You just sit on the floor and watch MTV if you wanted to. It's weird. God, I wish I knew the name of that store. Sean might know. I should hit Sean up and ask him. Uh, but going back to the Van Halen 45s, I remember getting the Hot for Teacher with the four-page poster uh, insert, and then it was like in a plastic sleeve where the album was, and the poster was on the other side of it so cool i still have one of those and i even wound up getting another one later because i just i ripped that poster shreds i hung it up on my kid drum set and stuff like that and just you know stupid stuff 
but I remember specifically that hot for Teacher 45 because on the B side was a song that I wouldn't hear on anything else until years later when I get my own copy of Van Halen 1. And that was this awesome mid-tempo, like, ballady kind of, but also kind of a rocker called Little Dreamer. And I was just fascinated with this song to no end. Skies. But you were young and bold And baby, didn't that change with a wink of your eye? Now no one's talking about those crazy days gone by No one talks about the times you cried A little still love that song easily in my top 10 van halen songs ever i was lucky enough to hear him play that live on the initial roth reunion tour back in 08 or whatever it was uh but yeah little dreamer great stuff uh yeah so that's that's basically like me like early early years joey 
I don't want to make this too long. I'm, I don't want to be so self-important and make this huge, bloated documentary about myself. But I'll talk about a few more things before we get out of here today. You know, throughout the 80s, you know, I really didn't give up on the 45. I think predominantly bought 45s all the way up until the end. Like, by the time they had fallen out of the record stores. And maybe by that point, I was probably leaning on the Casingle a bit more. Uh, and my sister was really into the Casingles. Yeah, it's weird. I would get full links throughout you know, my childhood and everything, but I could probably name you every full length that I had, like, in just the next few minutes here, and, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of full length albums. I, you know, you know those old things that look like they belong next to a fireplace? Like those metal things that, you know, they hold about 20... It's like aluminum metal or something like that, or something weird, but they look like they hold about 20 or so records before it gets packed. That's probably the amount of full lengths that I had, like, all throughout the 80s, you know? It was like Purple Rain, uh, the first two Poison albums, definitely Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, you know? And there's some other albums in there, too. I, I just can't remember them. I, uh, Hollow Notes, Rock and Soul Part 1, for sure. For sure that was in there. That one's Law. Huge early influence there, Hollow Notes. Uh, but yeah, like, I just... I was predominantly a singles kid, 45s, and then singles later on, and I would make like kind of those mixtapes for myself where I just compile all of the 45s and singles like onto like you know a few tapes, and that's what I would take with me on trips. You know, I was kind of uh, I, I I was I think I was a light packer early on. That would definitely help. <laughs> You can't take them with you, especially vinyl. Uh, so that's pretty much what I did, you know. And I oh record stuff off the radio, of course, just like any other kid from the 70s and 80s, you know. And I would just let it run. I didn't care the commercials were on there. So, yeah, going back to that, the Fisher-Price recorder. And, yeah, you'd hold it up to the radio speaker. And I remember, like, the first time I got Mr. Roboto on cassette recording it off the radio there was a huge thunderstorm that was like in our town and to this day it just does not sound right the end of mr roboto during the kilroy breakdown and all those computer noises at the end when that thing fades out if i don't hear a huge thunderclap like boom <laughs> like the song has always been lacking <laughs> since i made that recording so yeah, to this day, I think about those things. Oh, we're getting into like the end of the 80s here, you know, in my timeline. And yeah, I remember just going to the record store in 89 and being like, I, I knew, I, you know, because I remember one of the other full links I had that I just played to death was Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys, which it sounds so ridiculous now, but I was maybe seven years old when I got that on vinyl, maybe. And, you know, you think about the material that's on there, you know, I'm not going to say my mom was aloof, but uh, <laughs> definitely I, I would even put this on tape and try to play it in the car and she would just shut it off. But the fact that she never took my record away kind of surprises me now when I think about it, because you, you know the kind of like <laughs> uh, not safe for children material that's on there. I'm not approved by any means. But my mom certainly is, but she didn't throw my records away to her credit. You know, I'm kind of just now realizing all this. This is this is really weird. Uh, I do remember certain kids weren't able to come hang out with me after a while because uh, I was a bad influence uh, from what I heard later on. So it, it obviously had to have been the music because I wasn't one of those kids that, you know, you go out and throw rocks at windows and stuff. It was... 
the whole 80s for me especially once we got to Abilene and moved out there when I was like five or six years old so the ages of six to ten for me I just remember spending them on the trampoline and playing music on my jam box and that was it that was that was the second half of the 80s for me you know or watching TV inside I didn't go much past the that, that half of the house for sure so yeah I'm mean, so going back to 89 and I remember specifically I really really wanted to get Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys on vinyl so the idea was we were going on a summer vacation for the family we were going to spend a week in Dallas and go to like Six Flags and what was called Wet n Wild then which now I live 10 minutes from those places <laughs> But that was a big deal for us. We're going to take a week-long vacation, me, my mom, and my sister. And the idea was she was like, okay, go to the store. I'm going to go to this store in the mall. She was probably going to go buy some clothes at, like, Pennies or something. So she dropped me off at Musicland. She's like, you know, pick something out. And my plan going in there was, okay, we're going to get, we're going to see Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique on vinyl. We're going to buy it. I'm going to take it home, and I'm going to rip it on a cassette. And that's what I'm taking on the trip. And it became that thing where, oh, no, we don't have it on vinyl. And it was weird because I remember that whole summer, I looked for that album on vinyl. Of course, by the end of that day, I settled on the cassette of it, which I'm kind of glad I did now in retrospect. It was the first pressing of Paul's Boutique on cassette. It was a green cassette. And uh, still, to this day, the only like professional, you know, real release on a studio cassette that I wore the spool off by the end of the summer it dropped off so i had to like stick a pencil in it to lift it up to get it into the jam box and then slam it down so i could play it yeah people talk about putting the pencil in a thing to you know roll the little spool back up but i had to like lift the thing up just so it would play again one more time in the player and not thinking to make a copy of it at home <laughs> to make it easier myself nope wouldn't do that because it was already a cassette what are you gonna do but I remember wanting to get it on vinyl because this is where the nerdy part of me comes in finally into my vinyl history is I had heard that it was going to be like an eight panel gatefold thing. I, I read it like probably in Billboard or Rolling Stone or something because yeah, I was reading those magazines by then. Actually earlier in my life, those are the first things I was really reading were those two things. And I was like, I gotta get my hand on this thing. This thing is gonna look so cool because on the cassette, you see the building, you know, fold out and it looks fine and everything, but it's like, imagine what this looks like on vinyl. It's gotta be the biggest thing in the world. So we went on this trip and every time we were near a record store, I'd ask to go in it or, you know, stop here for a minute and I wanna go see if they have it. And every store I went into that summer was like, nope don't have it on vinyl and there were still vinyl in the stores but after a while finally after like months i was like you know i went every you know i was i remember saying something like i went everywhere this summer and nobody has this on uh, record on vinyl and then a guy finally told me well you know vinyl's going away it's leaving it's, it's you're not going to be able to buy it in the stores anymore and my heart sunk i was just like wow and you know i dealt with that and yeah, i went to cassettes after that i I uh, probably, you know, in retrospect, should have gone to CDs, but it wasn't my money. So, you know, the, the fact that these, you know, I like I said, I don't remember my family struggling, but, you know, records and tapes were definitely a luxury item. And 
CDs were like double the value of, you know, it was crazy. Because like at the time when the CDs were new in the store, they were like 15, 16 bucks, which they would remain that if you predominantly bought your CDs at Sam Goody or Musicland. Uh, but all jokes aside, or, or Tower, I guess, if you're from California. Uh, but I just was like, okay, we're just going to go to tapes then. Because you could still, you know, I could maybe get into some old stuff because, you know, old tapes were like really cheap, you know, four or five bucks. And the new stuff was like seven, eight bucks. So I went to tape and I stayed with tapes for a long fucking time. Like, you know, even as the CDs got affordable, I still hung on to the tapes for some really weird reason. I, I remember it was like, I consciously stopped buying tapes probably around 95 and uh, got into CDs, you know, did the Columbia House ripoff like everybody else did. and uh, But, you know, that that's not about vinyl. That's The show's supposed to be about vinyl. So uh, the cool thing is, even around that time where I first started getting into CDs and I was even doing the thing where, you know, most cars at that time, some of them didn't have CD players, that cassette player. So I just record the CD on the cassette, play it in the car. But I would still see vinyl creeping in here and there. And I remember specifically, uh, there was a warehouse music store, you know, and they would actually start carrying vinyl again. It's like, even though vinyl had only been out of stores for a few years, it's like some of the newer bands were starting to make that push for vinyl. Pearl Jam did it, and Stone Temple Pilots did it. And you could go into a warehouse music, like for instance, when Stone Temple Pilots' Purple album came out, you could buy it on vinyl, and if you had a player, you could listen to it like three weeks before the CD dropped, which is crazy to think about that because that would never happen nowadays because it wind up on the internet. But vinyl was such an afterthought for the industry that they would start doing that. I remember, you know, being a huge Kiss fan and the fact that I could go into warehouse music and buy a vinyl copy of Kiss My Ass and still having my record player in my room, I could just listen to it. And so it, vinyl never really left me completely. And the other thing I'm really happy about is that I never sold any of my records, you know, and there's a lot of these secondhand stores like uh, you know, your half price books of the world and places like that where people would sell their vinyl back because it's like, well, I'm never going to use this again. And so them not anticipating the quote unquote resurgence of vinyl. But, you know, as a fan, realizing that they, they didn't really stop pressing vinyl, they would just make fewer copies. So, man, those 90s albums, those are original pressings. Oof, you talk about hard to come by, man. But I think it's neat that it never really stopped. Uh, whether it was for DJ purposes or what have you, vinyl has never gone away. And this cassette resurgence isn't, isn't going to wind up being anything. I'm just going to break the news here right now. Cassettes are fun, and I still think they're neat and cool and everything, but it's that thing. It's the sound quality of the vinyl. This is not a, a stretch of the imagination. This is not us uh, exaggerating just to fit our lifestyle choices, you know, to fit that narrative that justify why we buy vinyl. It's truly the best sound quality, and it's... For, and, and it's also one of those things, it is a mental thing. It's you telling the world that you appreciate music as a whole, as, as an art concept. And vinyl is the ultimate appreciation of that. And we were appreciating it early on in our youth, even though we didn't even realize it. Just by doing that thing with putting the headphones on, staring at the gatefold or the back cover forever and trying to figure out what it was about if it had, like, you know, weird artsy things going on. and Or even just a photo of the band. And you just read the credits or just read along with the lyrics. And once again, that's how I learned how to read and write. So, uh, you know, owning vinyl and having it, to me, like, if you're in it for the right reasons, you're in it for appreciating music and you are a true music fan you know going back to all these kids today and everything you know I, i'm not gonna ever 
get mad at a kid that that walks up to the counter and slaps a 20 or a 30 <laughs> you know to to get purple rain if he's in it for the right reasons he if he's going to go home and put that on the headphones and you know read the lyrics and try to figure out what they mean and all that stuff then then that per- then they're in it for the right reasons if they're just buying it to have a baseball card and they're not even going to like spin it then that that's bullshit you know it's Vinyl is there to be appreciated as art, and I don't. I mean, I'm getting a little deep here, and and I probably sound super snobby right now, but I don't mean to. I'm really just trying to romanticize, and you know, tell you why I love vinyl and why I am vinyl. <laughs> and then as uh, the years went on, you start to see some of those releases pop up. You know, even in big box places like Best Buy and stuff like that, and they started carrying records. Even then, I still wasn't sold on the fact that it was back. Uh, because I remember thinking, and I know my rationale was, man, I've got all these CDs. Because <laughs> I went to work, at, and we'll talk about this stuff later on different episodes, but, you know, I wound up working at a CD warehouse for like seven years. And it was my the best job ever. It really was. I wound up just being an underling, and I wound up managing it by the end of the day. And, you know, as you'd want to do, even just patroning a CD store for years and years, much less working there and getting an excellent discount, my CD collection grew to massive proportions, and it still takes over an entire room. The CNJ Radio Studios is full of CDs. And I just remember thinking, man, I want to go back and buy all my CDs back onto vinyl. Like, you know how much money that's going to cost? Like, so I just blew it off thinking, ah, it's, it's, it's not going to be a thing. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. I wound up working at a place that... Uh, dealt with secondhand vinyl and around that time whenever people were saying vinyl was coming back and i was like yeah whatever but you know these records would come in i'm like man i don't have that on vinyl start buying that buy that and then it one turned into five and it just and my my vinyl collection just soared over the last five six years i mean just it's it's ridiculous it's it's pretty dumb actually so it's uh, my media collections are pretty much based on where i'm working at the time because you know with the kind of money i make and i've made throughout my life uh, i'm not having this kind of a collection unless i get like massive deals at this point so man if i ever leave that job which i actually pray that i leave that job sometime soon it's like uh you know the buying's gonna dry up but you know what i've been able to fill in all those blanks from all those releases over the years you know finally got all the roth albums with van halen on vinyl and things like that i got all the prince albums that i want on vinyl i mean it's just uh, it's been a great ride and you know still make that point to try to at least sit down once a day and put those headphones on and put that record on because at the end of the day that's what it's all about it doesn't matter if you own five records or 500 or 5,000 records if you take that time to stop down put the headphones on bring out the liner notes and just sit there and become a part of that thing and that's really what it's all about so that's why I am vinyl
On behalf of everybody here at cnjradio.com, we thank you for your time and for listening to our show here today. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to stay current on this show and any other show on CNJ Radio. You can do that by going to cnjradio.com, home of all the episodes of all the shows. Of course, type in any of these shows, you know, on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find some matches on there. Our ever-growing list of shows include The Flagship, The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other, Rock Strikes 10 with myself here, Joey, where I do a different list show every episode with no format pretty much at all. Speaking of no format, The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions featuring Randy Brown, a true alternative. Great show there and completely different from Rock Strikes 10. Like I said, a true alternative. Also, we have Last Theater with my cnjradio.com partner Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. Also, Talking Rock with myself and Mark Striegel, the great Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, where we discuss rock topics of the day. And the I Am Vinyl podcast with myself and the great Pete LaRusso, where we discuss our love for vinyl, current releases, old releases, and everything in between. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this show today and taking the time to do that. We know there's a lot of competition out there, and we just, if you're listening to this, you're a friend of ours. Thank you once again on behalf of myself and everybody here at cnjradio.com. So until the next episode, we'll see you then. Have fun.